And when you don't want girls and you don't value girls, you don't care what happens to them. Hmm. Well, we have all these kids. This girl's 12 years old. We don't have enough money to feed her. So let's go ahead and marry her off to this 60 year old man who then abuses her. Or, you know, it's an abusive relationship where she's kicked out. You know, a lot of the girls that are in the red light districts in Thailand aren't necessarily trafficked there. Many of them were not brought there against their will. They weren't forced to work there. A lot of them did, quote, choose to work in those areas. But when you take into consideration the extreme poverty, the lack of other choices and other viable job opportunities, it's not really a choice. Awareness is the first step in fighting human trafficking. Since 2007, over 56,000 cases of human trafficking in the U.S. alone have been reported to the National Human Trafficking Hotline, which receives an average of 150 calls per day. For season two, we want to help educate ourselves and you, the listener, on human trafficking. From the mental trauma caused from trafficking to the porn crisis only increasing the demand, we want you to become empowered with this knowledge to better serve your family, friends, and communities, to hopefully bring an end to human trafficking. Our goal remains the same, to live in a world where slavery is eradicated and justice prevails. I'm Natalie Bassey, and you're listening to The Compelled Podcast. We have a very exciting episode today. I had the opportunity to sit down with three of our full-time staff here at Freedom 424, Joy, Emily, and Rachel. We were able to discuss all of their experiences that they've had on international trips with Freedom 424 and what makes each of our international locations unique and different from the others. At times, this episode can be quite heavy, but yet I am confident that there is hope on the other side of this too. And just a trigger warning, this episode does discuss sexual exploitation and sexual assault. My name is Joy Cover. I've been with Freedom 424 for just over five years and held several different positions, but presently I hold the president position. Uh, my name is Emily Worsham. I am the office manager here and um, I've been on staff for almost six years now. Well, I'm the baby, I guess, of <laughs> Freedom 424 staff. Um, I'm Rachel Smith. I'm the programs manager here. I've been on staff for almost two years. Like we just said, I think two years in September. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I work a lot on our programs and events, doing like our 5K, Run for Their Lives series, um, our Freedom Market, our peer-to-peer fundraising initiatives. Mm-hmm. I really love how mm-hmm. many people I get to work with yeah. in my job. Yeah. In so many different communities across the United States right. with all of our partners. Right. And Rachel, this is your first time on the podcast with us. Yes. Emily so and excited. Joy were on. Joy was on season one. Emily's been on season Home one school. and season two, right? <laughs> yeah. And then Rachel, you know, we're so happy. One. Way back in season one. <laughs> Rachel, we're so happy that you're here with us today. I'm so excited. And we're just going to be talking about the international trips that each of you have been on. Um, you all have been on every international trip or each location? So I've been to both Thailand and India, mm-hmm. not with Freedom 424, okay. just separately. Right. I have not been to Uganda yet. Right. Okay. And Emily? And then both Joy and I have been mm-hmm. on all the three um, Freedom 424 international mm-hmm. trips. That's excellent. Excellent. So that's really what we're going to be talking about today and just how what human trafficking looks like in those locations, because you all have been able to see it firsthand. And that's a very unique perspective that you all have on human trafficking in those locations. So Emily, I want to begin with you. We do have a partner in Thailand and Thailand is a very developed country from the conversations that I've had with you mm-hmm. um, in passing. Prostitution is actually illegal in this country, but is also considered the sex capital of the world. Mm-hmm. So 
it's almost like saying one thing, but it's a completely different thing. Can you share some of the issues that may lead to exploitation and trafficking in this country? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it is really interesting because our partner, their Beginnings Foundation has a few different locations, one of them being in Bangkok, which is the capital of Thailand, and then a second location in Pattaya, Mm -hmm. which is about two, two and a half hours drive from Bangkok. So Pattaya City is 8.6 square miles. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we talked about this. We did. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a small beach town. And on any given night in high season, there's easily 50,000 women for sale just in that one night. What's high season? What would you say high season is? So like when more tourists come to the area. Mm -hmm. Um, Like the summer. Like the summer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, 50,000 women Mm -hmm. just within those 8.6 square miles. There's over a thousand bars in that area. Mm -hmm. But it is really interesting when you talk about how prostitution is illegal in Thailand. Right. So I think the biggest reason why um, trafficking and exploitation still happen in Thailand is because of poverty. So a lot of the girls who end up working in the red light districts of Bangkok and Pattaya and other parts of Thailand usually come from northern areas or really impoverished um, places of Thailand. So when we in America think of poverty, it's even worse than it is in Thailand. Mm -hmm. So poverty here in the United States, we still have welfare, Mm -hmm. we still have food stamps, Medicare, those types of things. In Thailand, none of that exists. Mm -hmm. There is no government welfare. Mm -hmm. There is no Medicare. There There are no food stamps. So if you don't make money, you can't feed yourself and you can't feed your family Mm -hmm. and you can't provide medical care to them. So for a lot of these girls who end up traveling to Bangkok or Pattaya um, to work in a bar in a red light district, Mm -hmm. they're doing so because they feel like they have no other option. They feel like their only option to make money and support themselves is by traveling to these cities and working and selling themselves. So it sounds as if it's more, there's so many things that are causing human trafficking to kind of take stage in Thailand. That's what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. You know, you said the poverty issue, the government isn't the government that we have here in the States mm-hmm. where we have food stamps, we have resources to try to help people get back on their feet. That's not a no. thing over in Thailand. No, That's very fascinating. I think that a lot of people aren't aware of that. I think people just assume that, oh, people just go into this lifestyle because they want to or they get, you know, kidnapped or whatever. Yeah. But sometimes they're faced with a choice and this is what they fall into. Yeah. And, you know, that brings up a good point in that, you know, a lot of the girls that are in the red light districts in Thailand aren't necessarily trafficked there. Many of them were not brought there against their will. They weren't forced to work there. A lot of them did, quote, choose to mm-hmm. work in those areas. Mm-hmm. But when you take into consideration the extreme poverty, the lack of other choices and mm-hmm. other viable job opportunities, it's not really a choice. It's not really a choice for them to do this that mm. was their only option mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so here in thailand um it's mainly exploitation instead of like textbook definition mm-hmm. trafficking right but that doesn't make it less bad mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right well yeah i was just gonna say you know in addition to all of those risk factors emily mentioned the extreme poverty not having the government resources there's no there's no level of education mm-hmm. and so yeah, like here right. did you say that no okay mm-hmm. so here in the united states mm-hmm. it's one thing we just take for granted the opportunities mm-hmm. that we have like we just go to public school we can go to university mm-hmm. and that opens up so many doors for other opportunities for jobs in thailand 
that's not the case. Wow. Mm-hmm. If people get education, the males are prioritized mm-hmm. and the girls don't have the opportunity to get that baseline education, which then you can build upon. It's a building blocks to opportunity, yet they're required to still carry the weight of taking care of their family. So how do you take care of your family? How do you make money if you've never been given anything, none of the tools with which to do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the other key piece um, that makes Thailand so much different than other parts of the world is that women are the financial providers of the family. So especially here in America and you know most other Western countries, men are seen as the breadwinners, the ones that make the money for the family. But in Thailand, it's the opposite. It's mm-hmm. women. Wow. Um, so that's why these women and girls feel so much pressure to work for the family and feel like this is their only option to make money. Mm-hmm. And it's like they're automatically set up for failure. There's mm-hmm. these expectations that's what it sounds that are like, put right. into place. Right. And yet there's no options mm-hmm. to fulfill that. So again, I would put the question out there, is it really a choice mm-hmm. to, to work in the sex exactly. trade if you're given nothing else? Mm-hmm. That's what it sounds like to you. Right. I want to um, pause that conversation for a moment. Rachel, I want to jump to you really fast. Before Freedom 424, you also, um, you said that you did missions and you did visit India. Can you give us some insight as to how trafficking looks like in India? Yeah, I haven't traveled with Freedom 424, but kind of a funny story as to how I connected with Freedom 424 was I worked um, in partnership with Freedom Firm and Ruhama Designs in India, mm-hmm. which is one of our partners. So mm-hmm. the world is a pretty small place right. after all. Right, um, right. <laughs> I've been to India about nine times, and um, one time I stayed and interned with a local organization there for about six months. So on top of a lot of short-term trips and that compilation building up of seeing the same people in areas um, after years of that I got to stay um, for a little bit longer period of time Mm -hmm. and really immerse myself a bit more in the Mm -hmm. culture, regularly visit. We worked in a red light district um, weekly. We were there um, with these girls, with that community, getting a really, really in-depth insight into what that looks like day to day. And Mm -hmm. so I think similarly to Thailand and Uganda, and I'm sure this is a theme Mm -hmm. you'll see recurring as we talk about other countries is trafficking and India is rooted in poverty. Um, And of course, it manifests itself differently and in different ways and in ways that is unique to Indian culture. But at all of these issues, you can trace it back to the root of poverty, lack of opportunity. Some additional factors that kind of come out of that poverty are just corruption. Um, Law enforcement is really corrupt. There are several laws in India that are supposed to protect people. Like, for example, the caste is a caste system is actually illegal, but it's not in practice. So there are a lot of laws that just aren't being enforced and a lot of people that aren't being protected. Um, Law enforcement officers are often very corrupt, Hmm. um, especially in the big cities. They're possibly non-existent in rural areas. And oftentimes it's law enforcement officers that are taking bribes from sex trafficking establishments and taking sexual services from these victims and often they're even bribed and they'll return rescue child victims back to their traffickers so there's a really broken criminal justice system that Mm -hmm. makes it hard to even pinpoint where trafficking starts where it ends Mm -hmm. and how to address that um, 
as well as gender inequality plays a really big role into trafficking and a little differently in Thailand I don't think girls are necessarily the breadwinners but that lack of education and opportunity they're often required to stay home or they're seen as less valuable um, and so they're married away really young or shipped off really young um, mm-hmm. because they are not the breadwinners for their families so their parents don't want them because mm-hmm. they're a girl right um, right and a bit of a disclaimer India is huge and there's over a billion people in India and countless geographical regions and each city is different and so it's hard to speak for the whole of that country mm-hmm, sure but you know in generalizing yeah lack of opportunity and female genocide is really big especially in rural areas girls are expensive they still have to pay a dowry and girls don't go to school so they're not making money so people don't want girls and when you don't want girls and you don't value girls you don't care what happens to them Hmm. Um, and so that's honestly how a lot of girls end up in trafficking situations is they weren't wanted so they were sold off they were given a promise of a false job in the city under the guise of being like a housekeeper working in a restaurant and no one cares and follows up with them when they move to the city just because their trafficker said we'll send money back to your families and then of course they don't Hmm. Um, and I think one thing that's really interesting about India in terms of trafficking that maybe separates it from the other countries is something called intergenerational prostitution and this is really related to the caste system in India Um, there are red light districts as kind of referred to, which I think we've talked about in some other podcasts, but these are areas, communities, um, you can think of it as like a neighborhood Mm -hmm. where it's not quite as glamorized usually as maybe you think of like in Thailand or Amsterdam or areas like that. These are people's homes and communities, but this is typically where women who are associated with a certain caste and families they were prostitutes they were trafficked and exploited and for generations that's what happens in that area and so kids grow up in that red light district their grandma was a prostitute their mom was a prostitute and that's the only choice they see for themselves Um, many women i talked to had never even left that neighborhood where they lived so that's all they see that's all they know Um, many children that i had the opportunity to work with um, and trying to provide childcare options for them, you know, would be in the room while their mom was being forced to serve clients. They would lay under the bed trying to go to sleep. And so this is the culture and the atmosphere that these kids are growing up in. And so sure, if you ask them, you know, were you kidnapped or, you know, trafficked as we, you know, kind of think of it like the movie Taken, they'll of course say no. But again, posing the question, did they really have a choice? Also no. Mm -hmm. And so, that intergenerational, you know, the caste system and the culture, justifying that and reinforcing it and being growing up in that community and seeing that as your only viable option um, plays a really big role in trafficking. Mm-hmm. And that's really associated to it, like debt bondage is the same person that trafficked their mom. You know, when she gets too old or dies, well, now it's on the daughter to mm-hmm. pay that debt. Um, and in rural areas, they really exploit that too in terms of rent or food um, where there's maybe not as much society built Mm -hmm. up around the more rural areas. What's crazy is I I think everything that you just explained 
I didn't even know Mm. that there's so many elements that go into why people are in trafficking and exploitation and why it happens to them, even just like the generational pattern that occurs Mm -hmm. within homes. I never even would have thought. And I think that's very um, important for people to be aware of that it's more than just, oh, it's because they're in poverty. No, it's also their family, like their their mom was involved, their grandmother was involved. It goes on for generations. And I think that does show, Emily, would you say it's like that in Thailand too? Or is it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe not as much as it is in India. I don't know mm-hmm. um, because um, we do know of set a lot of girls mm-hmm. in the red light districts when they get pregnant they'll often send their children back to the grandparents hmm. but some of them don't have that choice mm-hmm. they don't mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. a supportive family system mm-hmm. back at home so they keep the child with them mm-hmm. so I'm sure that it happens in Thailand but it's a very common theme in India it right. seems as if especially in those red light right I think they say um, in India one of the largest red light districts in like Southeast Asia is in India well wow. an area where we worked but they're mm-hmm. not quite as commercialized mm-hmm. as other parts it's a of different the world. look right. to it so interesting so we've been talking about Thailand and in India trafficking and exploitation joy how is Uganda different than these two locations there are it's interesting listening to the reviews of both those countries there are so actually so many similarities mm-hmm. uh, the risk factors mm-hmm. around poverty generational well some generational issues um, definitely gender inequality mm-hmm. a lot of similarities in that way just as Uganda says they you know they call it the value of the girl child is not there but I, I think what's interesting about Uganda they have a lot of inner country turmoil that so backing up they were a colony or they were under British rule and when they got free from that in the 60s well before they were free um, northern Uganda which is where we work there's a tribe there the Acholi tribe and they were conquered and made laborers you know basically served and so when the country was free from Britain the north and this tribe you know these individuals kind of rose up and rebelled and so there was a lot of civil turmoil and then you know, fast forward, well, there was the horrible 70s with Idi Amin, but then in the 80s, the president, who is now still in control, so to speak, he took over and the North was still fighting against the South and there was still um, a lot of unrest. So that creates more um, instability. Joseph Kony rose up out in the North. He was from the Acholi tribe or is, because I think he's somewhere still alive in Africa. Um, but anyway, Joseph Kony rose up and he wanted, was one of the many coups that rose up against the presidency and against the South. And he started taking, fighting within the Acholi. So there's the North and the South and rest, and there's the Acholi LRA versus the Acholi, Acholi in general people fighting against each other. So he would go in and capture children and make them part of his army. And so kids would live in fear of being sto- literally stolen in the night. So I think tens of thousands, tens of thousands of kids were taken and absorbed into the LRA. Girls were raped. Uh, the boys, they were both boys and girls made to be ch- children's child soldiers. So that was a huge part of the unrest in the North. In the North, So civil unrest, then intertribal unrest, then of course poverty and gender inequality. And so all of these things compiled and so now here we are today where girls are exploited due to a lot of those things still. So even though Joseph Kony isn't 
you know, the LRA isn't active in northern Uganda, the rest of the country still holds northern Uganda responsible because, well, Joseph Kony came from there. In fact, one of our trips there when we were working with our partner in Christine's house, we went to his town where Joseph Kony was from. We were working at his primary school, which was kind of eerie. Mm. This is where it all started. It was it was very weird. But because all, of all those factors, the rest of the country holds the north responsible for all of that unrest. And so they don't get as many resources. So it's still continuing that poverty that, yeah, it's still playing into it. So in Uganda, aside from the poverty, um, it's illegal for girls to be married under 18. But there, there's that generational aspect where, well, my grandmother was married at 12. My mom was married at 13. So this is what we do. So mm-hmm. it's illegal, mm-hmm. but you know, they still do but it. But this is how it's always been. That's right. And then again, well, we have all these kids. This girl's 12 years old. We don't have enough money to feed her. So let's go ahead and marry her off to this 60 year old man who then abuses her. Or, you know, it's an abusive relationship where she's kicked out. Um, maybe she's walking to school or from school or to get water and she's raped. Maybe she's attacked by somebody you know, one of her neighbors comes in and attacks her in her her own home. Again, that speaks to there is no value. Are there red light districts in Uganda too? Or is this really, is that really just more found in Thailand and India? There are. And even some of the girls who have, I don't know that they're called red light districts. They're Mm -hmm. discos or clubs or Mm, dance clubs, things like that. And the girls at Christine's house have come from those situations. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the girls that we typically work with, it would fall under exploitation, child exploitation. Because, you know, again, they were raped, they were attacked, they were sold in child marriage. Mm Um, Emily, I want to transition to you quickly. Um, You and your team would go into red light districts when you would go to Thailand to reach these girls. Can you just tell us um, about that experience? Let me just say what is a red light district Mm -hmm. for those that haven't been to one before. So a red light district is an area of a city. Um, It could be a street or um, multiple streets um, all in one line with bars, clubs, show bars. Uh, So in Thailand, specifically a show bar is an establishment where you can go and watch a girl perform a certain show. It's usually some type of sex show. All of these establishments, no matter what the like main purpose of that establishment was, whether it's like a food and drink bar or some sort of club, they are all there for the purpose of buying and selling women and girls. One thing that you see a lot in Thailand is many different types of customers. So when we first started going to Thailand in the mid to early 2000s, most of the customers were Westerners. So Americans, Europeans, and that's still very much the case. However, the longer that we go to Thailand, the more we're seeing customers from many other parts of the world, like Japan, China, the Middle East, India as well. So all different types of customers, all different ethnicities, all different genders. Um, There's both men and women customers, specifically in Thailand, buying these women and girls. So yeah, it's people from all over, from all different walks of life, rich people, not so rich people, all come to these areas for the purpose of buying an individual. Is there a moment in the red light district in particular, whether that's um, something that you observed or maybe a story that you can share with us that you have not been able to forget? There's a lot. Every year that I go, there's something else. There's many times where I was, I wish that I could forget the things that I've seen there, but I will never forget my first trip to Thailand. It was a really difficult trip on a lot of different levels. And this was one of our last 
last nights in Bangkok. So the purpose of our trip, we host Christmas parties for girls that are still in the red light district. So we have this huge event. It's a lot of fun. We feed them, we play games and just love on them and share Christ with them and the resources that our partner Beginnings Foundation can provide to them. And so we invite girls from these red light districts to come to the party. After the parties are over, you know, the night after they're over, we our team goes back into those bars and red light districts to find the girls that came to the party. We give them a gift and then, you know, we tell them that we love them and just remind them of the things that they heard at the party. And so on my first trip, we were going back into one of the bars where some of my girls had come from. And I remember walking up to the bar manager, the mama-san, that's what they're called in Thailand. I remember walking up to her and I remembered the girl's name and I had a picture of her. And I said, have you seen this girl? Um, I don't remember what her name is now, but I called her name and I showed her a picture of the girl. And she said, what's her number? And so I'm thinking she wants her cell phone number. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And I didn't have that. And I was like, I don't know. I don't have her number. And she kept saying, what's her number? What's her number? And she pointed to her shoulder. And in that moment, I realized that the bar manager knew this girl by the number that she wore on her lingerie. Mm. Because all of the girls in every bar, in every club, they are, all are numbered. They're all wearing a number. That's so dehumanizing, isn't it? Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I, like, my mouth just drops. Like, I could not believe that this woman that was managing these girls and was paying them did not know her name, but she knew her number. I will never forget that. Mm. It, like, rocked my world. Mm. Yeah. Emily, can you just tell us why do you think that customers are even going to this location anyway? Um, I think specifically for Thailand and for Bangkok, um, it's a central location in Southeast Asia. It's very easy to get to. Uh, a lot of flights go in and out of there. There's also a lot of businesses and corporations that have headquarters there. So a lot of the customers don't necessarily go to Thailand solely for the purpose of visiting red light districts and buying sex is oftentimes with multiple different motives. Thailand is a beautiful country. Mm-hmm. It's so gorgeous. It's a great vacation spot. So a lot of times families will travel to Thailand on vacation and while they're there in Bangkok or Pattaya or Phuket, other locations, they will visit these red light districts. They'll visit Walking Street. So actually, if you Google Walking Street, if you look it up, it's considered like a tourist destination in Pattaya and people will take their families, their small kids to Walking Street, which is one of the largest red light districts in Pattaya. I think red light districts, specifically in Thailand, have just been so romanticized. You can thank Hangover 2 for that. Like it was just it was just so normal to go to a red light district and to go to a bar and participate in commercial sex. I don't think that most of the men and women that travel there, that travel to these red light districts are only there for sex. They're usually there with other motives that aren't really that bad. Rachel, so I wanna know this, how has your heart for bringing justice to these victims changed after each trip that you've been on? So I, 
traveled to India first, I was 14 years old. I went with my mom and I remember talking to our missions pastor. I went with the church and we were asking, is this even safe for a young American girl to go into these areas? And he said, you know, from his experience and talking to our partners there, of course it's safe. Um, she's a young white American girl and they wouldn't touch her because someone would come looking for her. They want girls that no one's going to look for, that no one cares about. You're 14 years old and you you live in a bubble, mm-hmm, right? You're right. in junior high, going to high school wow. and your friends are worried about picking out their homecoming dress and someone said, oh, she's not in danger because someone wants her and no one wants those other girls. And I think being exposed to that at such a young age, of course comes with its own you know heaviness and needing mm-hmm. the right support system to walk through that and, mm-hmm. but that changed that rocked my world and I never lived life the same way mm-hmm. and getting to go at that young age those girls were my age and so offering something on the trip and on the team that you know people my mom's age couldn't offer as much as they were doing was relating to them mm-hmm. and giving them that piece of their childhood back and just playing games on the rooftop with mm-hmm. them and singing songs and being kids and so getting to go back and I think this is really important too is when you take a trip if you are able to return and go back if it's like any possibility that is so important even like if, go back to those yeah, girls go that back you were with. to those mm-hmm. girls and mm-hmm. I think it's important that freedom 424 even if we're not taking the same people we return every year because People look forward to it. They know Freedom 424 is coming to visit and to do this thing or, you know, the church I went there coming back. Wow. And so getting to be on that trip and go back year after year, I feel like I really got to grow up with a lot of these girls and our lives and our stories were so drastically different, but in so many ways they weren't. And we learned how to dream together mm-hmm. and how to process together. And I remember going back and telling these girls when I got engaged and and we were all like so excited and they were telling me about you know their families and their relationships as they were working through their healing journeys mm-hmm. and so I feel like my heart changed each trip because I was growing and mm-hmm. I was changing and as I understood healing and justice more as I got older and I became mm-hmm. an adult that I took that with me and I had that cultural experience and seeing people with a life much different than mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, every time you travel or go somewhere outside of your comfort zone, even if it's next door mm-hmm. and that's outside of your comfort zone, God's going to speak to you and share a different part of his heart every time. And you can only learn so much, right? If you stay in one mm-hmm. room no, and you don't sure. talk to different people. For sure. Yeah. Um, and so I think anytime you do something different and you meet someone different and you hear a different story, God's going to reveal a different part of mm-hmm. his heart and of, you know, of him, his self and who he is to you. And I think too, one thing that really changed me was when I was 14, like dream boards and vision boards really big, you know, cutting mm-hmm. out magazines mm-hmm. and, and like putting them up on your wall. really cool. Don't right. laugh at me, Joy. Right. I mean, now we have Pinterest. For Did I have 12 of them on my wall? I won't say, but... I, this Amazing. was my contribution uh, to the trip. I was like, we're going to do dream boards. It's going to be so cool. And I remember going and in some places the girls are really young. And then in some places we worked, the women were older, mm-hmm. but 
everywhere we went, the woman, the women just sat and stared at their board. Like, we don't know what to do. And I was like, what, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do? What mm-hmm. kind of clothes do you want to have? And for minutes, they would just sit there dumbfounded and staring at all these magazine pictures. We even got like magazines in India trying to be culturally relevant. Mm-hmm. And the more we talked to them, they had never had the opportunity to think of these things for themselves. To, to really dream, dream for to themselves. Dream. Mm-hmm. That's and what it so sounds like. I yeah. think that was a big part of my uh-huh. heartbeat change was like, what are my dreams? Mm-hmm. And how can I redirect that so that my dreams are centered? on someone else mm. because my dreams as a 14 year old American were so selfish uh-huh. and we're so stupid mm-hmm. and they're legitimate not that mm-hmm. all 14 year old girls are stupid they're yeah. very real but when you see that that this girl has no idea what she wants to be when she grows up because no one asked her that question she doesn't know what her favorite color is because no one ever asked her no one gave her time to think about it mm-hmm. and so I think my heart changed and that my dreams changed mm-hmm. um, because we take that for granted the mm-hmm. ability to dream and to think about these things and to go back to school and change our major after three years in college and that's so true those aren't bad things Mm -hmm. but some people don't have they don't have those basic and they can't even like begin to think right like in that way you know when you're saying the girls were just staring down looking at all the magazines and they're like where do we even begin because we've never even been presented the opportunity to even like think for ourselves Mm -hmm. and dream for ourselves that's a that's a beautiful um story that you just shared with us i love that rachel how do you see international awareness of human trafficking growing? Definitely in the United States, which this isn't internationally, but there have been a lot of kind of high profile cases and documentaries. And while sometimes it's a little over glamorized, it's made people more aware and start seeking out the truth and what does this really look like? Um, I think the State Department our Secretary of State, they put out a trafficking in persons report, and I've noticed as their reports progress. So if you haven't read it or you aren't aware of it, it's a great resource. It's a lot to read, but they talk about our different international allies and different countries and the way those countries handle human trafficking. And in the 2020 report, there was a really big emphasis on how that country is handling awareness. How is that country not only addressing the issue in prosecuting traffickers and rescuing girls and having rehabilitative services, but how is that country even letting their citizens know this is happening and making people aware. And so they've really put an emphasis on that in recent years. I think even something as simple as when I've traveled, I see in airport bathrooms, those little cards that, you know, if you see a situation, here's some red flags, here's the international hotline number, or here's a local law enforcement number you can call. And I think even little things that you see that weren't there when I first started, you know, traveling internationally, it wasn't a thing. And now those are pretty common. Even in rest stop bathrooms, I see them Mm -hmm. on the mirror. Mm -hmm. And so I think any movement, word of mouth, as more people become Mm -hmm. aware Mm -hmm. and it becomes a priority, more people are going to tell other people and it's going to spread that way positive effect, I guess, of technology and social media Mm -hmm. is it can be used for harm, but also people can use their Mm -hmm. platform to be a voice for good. And that's Mm -hmm. an international platform. Mm -hmm. People in so many countries have an Instagram that Mm -hmm. if you're sharing those statistics, Mm -hmm. exactly. So we should be safe on social media and be aware of that. But also people have it and people are looking at it. So we might as well be putting Mm -hmm. useful Mm -hmm. life-saving information out there. So good. Yeah. What's that, um, Danielle's? Operation Eyes, Operation Watching Eyes. What is that? Um, there's a, I can't remember the name of it. Um, Emily might get it in a minute, but there's a, a UK-based 
company uh, organization that essentially is taking pictures of girls who are trafficked. They're trying to find missing girls. And so they have one girl we know when we were in the red light district in Thailand, she would be taking pictures of the different girls and sending them to their database so that they would be able to identify Mm -hmm. whether they, if they could match them up Mm -hmm. in a system with a girl who was missing. Mm -hmm. So you're right. There's a lot of good things, you know, that we can do. Did you get it? Operation Open Eyes. Operation Operation Open Eyes. Eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Operation Open Eyes. So they're, you know, trying to match those missing really girls cool. with girls who are out on the streets. That's actually really cool. Yeah. I've never heard of that before. And we'll have that in the show notes mm-hmm. too for people to have more information about yeah. what that organization is doing. Joy, how has COVID-19 impacted red light districts and trafficking? So it's positive in one way because mm-hmm. with the whole world shut down and with everyone in quarantine, those locations are not able to operate anymore. You know, our partner in Thailand specifically They've sent us pictures of empty streets where last year they were completely packed. You know, Mm -hmm. you had to weave your way through, you know, customers, through the girls. And now it's just empty, completely empty. On one side, really positive because no longer are these women and girls being exploited night after night, um, being trafficked. The hard thing about that, you know, when I was in Thailand last year, we went to visit this a slum area and is just little narrow paths through shacks that were all kind of propped up over water because you know flooding and so just a lot of bugs it it was just a hard place to be where i can't even really describe it in words you'd have to go but just really tiny quarters shacks packed in next to each other tiny little trails that interwove in and through you could just get lost in this place and we would go and visit a few different houses just to say hi and it was just this tiny little dark hole you'd walk into with like a metal roof and you know clothing lines hung inside the house and you'd have to like kind of walk and navigate through dirt and this is where a lot of the girls from the red light districts live they live in the slums and then you know you walk around a corner and go into one of the houses and there's a one-year-old baby and that's the baby of the girl who lives and lives there and works in the red light district and works in one of those bars and so now that she's not working in the red light districts how is she feeding her baby so it's really hard because there's so much so much interconnection cool they're not out on the streets now they're not working they're not servicing clients anymore because covid has shut that down but now are they starving are they how are they getting work because it, again it comes back to they don't have an education to do anything else they don't have the resources to take care of their family this is what they had so on the the flip side of the whole pandemic there's a lot of increased need Um, And then stateside, again, trafficking preys on vulnerability. So anytime there's a vulnerability, that's going to be exploited. And so as we're seeing people losing jobs, as we're seeing bars and restaurants closed, dance clubs closed, I know there have been some in in some of our partner locations where the, the the dance clubs are closed. Well, that means the girls aren't working there. Well, what are they doing? Well, now they don't have a job, so that leaves them open to being exploited mm-hmm. in a different way different or way, yeah. in a further way. So it's catch-22. Mm-hmm. We're really glad to see some of these locations not operating, but our hearts are broken because we don't know what's happening to some of those women and girls who have no other options. Mm-hmm. For sure. I think that's just something that more people need to be aware of too, that COVID is impacting these people yeah. all over. Yeah, it's anytime, really... you know, you look at some of the the past natural disasters, Katrina, Hurricane mm-hmm. Katrina, um, 
hurricanes, just any natural disaster. Mm -hmm. And there's some studies that show that, of course, as soon as those natural disasters occur, there's a huge gap, a huge void that's left. And that's filled by people who can exploit those who are impacted by that. Wow. So, you know, this is no different. Mm -hmm. It's a huge, this has impacted the entire world. So there's horrible voids all over the place. People who have deep need and mm -hmm. don't have the ability to take care of mm -hmm. themselves or yeah. their families. And so people who want to make money off of that are doing that. Mm -hmm. I want to go around the table and I want to ask, I, the question I want to ask each of you is what compels you to go overseas and help these women personally? What compels you to keep going back, to go overseas, to fight for human trafficking? It's kind of going off what Joy of course. said. I think when we look at natural disasters too, or pandemics, it was taking my mind back to, we all talked about the root causes of trafficking, of poverty, of lack of education. And so, you know, reasons these women end up there. And so if we also aren't doing our job to prevent that and look at these other issues, the intersectionality of war and social justice issues, you know, like lack of education and immigration and refugees, if we're not addressing other issues and the base of that, what it intersects with, of course, when bars and red light districts closed down, they didn't have any other choices to begin with. Mm -hmm. So them going back home is maybe not always the best thing either. And so it's very interconnected. And so we have to yeah, partner with other social justice organizations and work on the prevention side as well as mm -hmm. how can we meet those needs before it gets to mm -hmm. that point. Sure. Um, it just made me think of that. And then to answer your question about what compels me to go overseas and help these women personally, I initially went because India was a big partner of our, the church I went to. They went frequently. They worked mostly with Mother Teresa's homes there, and they got connected with kind of the human trafficking side of things through an organization. And I don't know, sometimes you just feel that heart tug, right? That passionate. I think Claire maybe talked about it, our former intern, about that fire. And you don't know what it is. You just want to be a part of it. And so, and my mom was going and I love my mom and she was cool. So I wanted to go with her. But I think once I got there, whatever it was that brought me there, I got to speak with a girl through a translator who's now a good friend of mine and have this really vulnerable moment. And we Everywhere we went, we were asked to share our testimony and team members were asked to take turns sharing their stories and just help the girls open up, even if they didn't open up to us, maybe they would open up to their staff and the women they were around. Um, anyway, we I shared my story, my the woes of my 14-year-old American life. Um, and I just shared and talked about how grateful I was to be there, how much I was learning, what I was going to do when I got back, how I was going to fundraise and go back again, which my mom is in the back going, no, don't tell me that. <laughs> but of course, we both went again. Um, but one of these girls came up and talked to me afterwards and told me her whole story, which was a lot for me to take in at such a young age. But she said, clearly you have a voice. You came all the way here and you told me your story. So I know if you go home and you tell my story, then someone's going to listen to you, but no one's going to listen to me. And she just kept saying, tell my story, tell people my story. And so that's what compelled me to go back year after year was to go there, to listen, to learn, and to bring that information back and say, this is happening. 
These are people's lives and there is something we can do about it. No matter how small you think your platform is, no matter how few followers you have on social media, your voice is so much louder than those who are being exploited right now. And it's loud enough to say something, to share that story. And so it might mean going next door. It might mean calling up a local organization. I hope it means coming to India or Thailand or Uganda with us to see, some, to see that and to hear those stories you don't hear every day. But when someone asks you that and begs you to tell that story, mm. you can't not tell that story. <laughs> you have to say something and do something. And so that's why I'm compelled to go back year after year to help these women. Mm. I think for me, similar to what Rachel was saying, when I first heard about this issue, I knew I had to do something about it. We've talked about that before and I think the very first episode. Mm -hmm. So when I went to India for the first time in 2016 and looked into the eyes of girls who had been trafficked and exploited. And I saw how beautiful they were. I saw just how amazing they were, how smart they were. And I thought about my life. I thought about how I had been taught my worth. I had been taught how beautiful I was and how valuable I was. I had been given access to education. I had every opportunity to succeed and those girls didn't. Those girls didn't know their worth. They didn't know that they were valuable. They didn't have education. Like in Thailand, the girls were known by a number instead of a name. And that just shook me and I, <laughs> I'm an Enneagram one and so I'm very, justice and fairness oriented. Mm -hmm. So when I realized that all of those girls didn't have the opportunities that I had, I was not okay with it. Mm -hmm. And I yeah. wanted to stand up for them and fight for them. And that is what compels me to keep going is knowing that, that I can play a role in making them feel valuable and beautiful and worth something. I have three that I can think of, three reasons and kind of that motivate me to keep going back. The basic, I love traveling and I love experiencing culture and I think there's so much value in getting outside of your own bubble and understanding that Central Virginia doesn't have it all figured out and that other countries, while they do things differently, there's a lot of beauty in that and there's a lot that we can learn from them. So that ties into my second reason. I love leading teams. I love it. Even prior to working at Freedom 424, I had opportunities to take teams to different countries in the world to experience culture. And I think there's even more, I love it even more with Freedom 424 because it also, it combines my love of travel and culture with the thing that I'm most passionate about in fighting against human trafficking and helping people to understand why we are where we are. And so our trips are so essential to that because it takes the person out of their comfort zone and it helps their senses to be even more heightened to what is going on and more sensitive to how the Lord is speaking to them, to how the spirit is moving and how they 
can be part of it. And so I, I love that. It's so, you know, you can read the stories, you can read our bio cards that we have, but then when you get to sit down next to a girl and eat dinner with them using your hands, you know, just, just like her and you're eating rice with your fingers and she's making fun of you because you're not doing it right, but you know her story and you know where she's come from and yet she's sitting next to you laughing and she's sitting next to you rejoicing in where she is. There's just some, there's something magical is it like a poor word but also it's an amazing word because you don't expect it and so i think that also it ties in with my last reason is that i need it for my soul <laughs> because you know you sit at a desk day in and day out and for me i read news articles all the time about this atrocity like i read one last week that i almost had to leave work because it flattened me so much like it hurt me so much. And a lot of times the media doesn't report the restoration side of it. So when we go on these trips, we get to talk to girls who, yes, they've been through, they've been to hell and back, but they're on their way back. And we get to see the healing that is taking place in them. And we get to see the restoration um, that that's occurring in them. And the media doesn't portray that. And so it's selfish, but I need to see that. I need to know that there's hope. I need to know that yes, we're up against one of the biggest evils. You know, we're fighting against one of the biggest evils in the world, but there is hope and there is restoration that's occurring. And so when we get to go and sit down and dance until, you know, dance the night away or, you know, do arts and crafts or you serve along with these girls in different projects, it's showing the other side. And it really also, at least for me, brings home, wow, this is such a process. It's such a process of bringing these girls out of the darkness. And I'm so incredibly grateful to be working with partners who are doing that so well. Our partners in India and Uganda and Thailand are dedicated to bringing restoration and freedom, but it reinforces again, man, I wish we could just stop this before it ever started. I wish we could prevent it before it starts because what would this girl's life have been like if she'd never had to have gone through this? Thank you for everybody bringing their own unique experience, inter like being international and experiencing, you know, being in these countries where these girls are and, and meeting them and having conversations with them and getting to know who they are. Thank you for sharing that experience with us. I think a lot of us all learned something today. I know I did, um, and I know that our listeners are too. So I just want to say thank you once more for this opportunity. It was it was really impactful for me, at least. Thanks, thank you. Thanks, Natalie. Thanks, Natalie. Thank you. If you are interested in joining us in the fight to end human trafficking, please visit our website at freedom424.org. We have many ways to get involved, such as becoming a Freedom 424 ally. Your donation of $24 or more a month helps women with medical expenses, food, and education. So consider becoming an ally today to help these exploited women. And as always, we are active on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Freedom 424. And while you're at it, be sure to review and subscribe to our podcast on whichever platform you're listening. And once again, thank you for listening.